listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. If you would join me in the book of James, James chapter 2. We're going to get right to work here. Uh, The title of our time together this morning is Wanted, Dead or Alive. And if you're tracking with me, you're thinking of a particular song that was released in 1986. Some of you might be thinking, is that what he was thinking? Yes, it was. I'll explain more about that at the conclusion of our time. As you're turning to James chapter 2, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we got to celebrate our middle child's birthday. Karis, our daughter, turned 12. And for her birthday, she asked for a bedroom uh, renovation, uh, an upgrade. So she picked some paint colors. She wanted a bigger bed, uh, searched on Amazon, found the bed that she wanted, got the paint that she wanted. And a couple of, well, about three or four weeks ago, we, we, we put it all together. Bed came in, we assembled the bed, she was so excited about it, and I can tell you within the first 30 to 60 minutes, Karis and I both hurt ourselves, stubbed our toes, y'all know what that feels like, makes you wanna say words you shouldn't, in the middle section of, of the bed. So on the outskirts where the frame is, there's a middle section, and I've always wondered, why on earth do they do that? For years, beds have been totally fine, but just to support at the the head and down at the feet. But now they start putting the supports in the middle. And when you walk by it, if you're not careful, if you don't see it, you'll hit it. And sure enough, I did that twice within a 30-minute time period, and Karis did herself. Now, why do I tell you about that? Because the reason uh, that I told you, uh, that I've told you that that support section is Uh, so important to the bed that they've they've decided to put it there, we find ourselves in the same place here in James chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 14, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. And what I hope to show you, what I hope you'll see is this particular passage of Scripture is seen as like the center support for this letter. Many scholars agree that it is one of, if not the primary reason James's main argument for this letter as he's writing to Christians who have been dispersed because of their faith in Jesus. And what we'll see is that James is going to make a biblical argument for how faith and works go together. Now, there are 108 verses in the book of James, and we have already covered 40 of them. We're going to look at the next 13 this morning, which, if you can count, brings us right up into the halfway point of this letter. In chapter one, we spent several weeks looking at how James commanded us to count various trials as joy. And as we work through chapter one, I think there were six or seven different messages just in chapter one, we saw different types of trials and tests and in which God asks us or commands us to ask him for wisdom so we can learn how to have joy in them. And then last week, we began chapter 2, and we saw how favoritism is a deadly sin. And all of us are guilty of judgments that are based upon first impressions. But James lovingly reminded us 
that it is God who chooses his children, not based upon wealth, not based upon skin color, not based upon height or weight, and certainly not a political affiliation. It doesn't matter what decade you were born in, what state you were raised in, or what church you chose to be a part of. God sovereignly chooses us in love. And then he requires that we love others the same way that he does. Kent Hughes, who is an author and a professor, tells a story of a time when he was reading the cartoon section of a particular publication. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like the comic strip of the newspaper, right? Do they even still have those? Yes? Okay, good. I thought this would be a great illustration, but if we don't have comic shirts, maybe it just falls flat on its face. (laughs) But in this cartoon was a fictitious billboard of a church that was trying to advertise its particular ministry. And here's what the billboard said. The Light Church. It's the name of the church. L-I-T-E, The Light Church. And here's what they advertise. We have 24% fewer commitments. We are home of the 7.5% tithe. We have 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services, and we have only eight commandments. And guess what? You can choose which ones you want. We use just three spiritual laws. Basically, we are everything you've wanted in a church and less, end quote. Now, the reason I share that with you is the irony of that cartoon is how true I believe or see it to be in our own culture today and how true it is for most Christians living in the modern-day world here in the Western Hemisphere. We go to church um, expecting uh, in one way or another to be uh, entertained or to feel welcomed, but there's no ever, uh, there's hardly ever any feeding of the mind and the heart. Uh, maybe we, we just come and receive a, a good a handful of nuggets of truth and we, we get these feel-good statements that are true, but maybe that's as far as it goes. The truth is, though, we need to hear truth that actually troubles our hearts. We need to be challenged and convicted of what this word says and what we actually believe. Christians need to learn, myself included, to wrestle with concepts that are presented in the Bible that actually challenge our worldviews and our faith. And in most cases, what we see in the Western civilization is something that often produces a lackluster faith, which, as we will see here in just a few moments, James says is no real faith at all. I do hope, friends, that you'll travel along with me over the next 30 minutes or so and pay close attention because our text this morning deals with something every one of us are guilty of every day. This morning, James has a word for those of us who have fallen asleep to the wonders and the joy of a vibrant faith that is living and active. Amen? Amen? You're with me? Now, since this is a longer passage, we're going to look at 13 verses this morning. I don't want to read it all uh, at once up front. I I just like to work through it in sections. So if you look at verse 14, we're going to begin by reading there, and we're going to dive right in. Uh, If you're following along in your notes, that you received, the first thing I'd like to bring to your attention, our first point is, I think it's fair and it's important for us to get a biblical definition of faith. A biblical definition of faith. And I want to show you that from verses 14 through 17. Read with me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, in an effort to be clear, uh, I want to give you a definition. I did not put this in your outline, but I I would encourage you to write this down. Uh, I want to give or submit to you a definition of biblical faith uh, that I believe I've kind of compiled that's compounded from or according to gospel truth and specifically what we see in the New Testament. Now, before I give you this, I'm assuming almost everyone in this room knows what faith is and then particularly even more what faith is according to the Bible, Hebrews 11 verse 1. Amen? Here's here's how I would define biblical faith. Biblical faith is a faith that holds Christ as the object. Biblical faith is a faith that holds Christ as the object. It trusts in Christ for salvation, and it commits to following Christ during your time here on earth. So in conjunction with Hebrews 11.1, biblical faith is a faith that holds Christ as the object, Second, it trusts in Christ for salvation and it commits to following Jesus during the remainder of your time here on earth. Furthermore, as we will see here in just a few moments, this biblical faith that James is talking about is demonstrated in the works of a believer as a result of the transformation that has already occurred in the heart of the believer. Now, when Christ, friends, is the object of your faith, You do not base your faith on what you've done in the past or what you will do in the future. Having Jesus at the center as the object of your faith allows you to focus on the right now. Not worrying about what happened three days ago or what's going to come. Christ at the center of your faith allows you to focus on right now because you are satisfied with who he is and what he has done for you. Therefore, you and I, we trust in him for for salvation And we know that following or committing our lives to anything or anyone else is totally worthless. Amen? Now, let me uh, address something really quick that I think kind of tends to blur the line for us when it comes to what saving faith is and what saving faith isn't. And that's exactly what I believe James is trying to do here. In the first four verses, James describes what I would call a general faith. That's in your notes we see a general faith. This faith, dear friends, is dead and it does not work. General faith is dead. It does not work. This faith is easy to claim. And it's also extremely important for you and I, uh, as we think about this, to examine our own hearts, to, to ask, do I have a general faith? Is my faith common? Do I display the same faith in Jesus that I would display when it comes to where I'm going to get my next meal, or where my next paycheck is going to come from. This is a general faith. We experience this faith every day of our lives, and it often tends to become something bad when the object of our faith shifts from him to us. That's a problem. James reminds us that this faith is dead, but he doesn't stop there. He tells us about the opposite of general faith, general faith, and that's what I would call genuine faith. James gives us a picture of genuine faith. This faith is alive. It produces something, and the Bible calls that fruit. 
This faith also works actively alongside works. Works and faith. Faith and works. They work together. And this is precisely why Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, that we will recognize true believers by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Christian, you must know that Christ did not die for you and me so he could give us a faith that died with him on that cross. This is why the resurrection is so awesome. On the third day, when Christ rose from the dead, he not only proved that he was God in human flesh, he not only proved that he now has authority over heaven and on earth and over life and death, but he showed us that he himself is the source of life. He is the source of anything good. He gives us good things that not only give us life, but they have the power to produce something that sustains us through life. So this faith that James contrasts here, there's a genuine faith which is dead. Excuse me, a genuine faith that is alive and a general faith which is dead. Now, I know this to be true because of what James says in the next few verses. Let's pick up at verse 18 and we'll read uh, through 19. James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one and you do well, but even the demons believe and they shudder. James gives us a picture here. If you're following on your notes, the second point is we see one picture of a squandering faith. James tells us, emphatically about a squandering faith. In the next several verses, James is going to use a series of rhetorical questions and illustrations to prove his point. He goes on to say that there will be those who will say, well, I have faith and you have your works. And the problem with that is they both think that they will be okay in the end. That's the problem. It's this mindset that actually exists and pervades the the day and age that you and I live in. We live in this world that says, hey, you do what you do, and I'll do what I, I want to do, and we're both going to be fine. It's the mentality that almost mirrors universalism. Now, universalism is the belief that all of mankind will, in essence, be saved and go to heaven. And this is what Christians or people fall into when you say that I have my faith and you have your works but it's going to be okay in the end. You do you and I'll do me. The danger of this idea is that it squanders away a true biblical faith. And in verse 19, James likens this squandering faith to the demons. It's interesting that he brings the demons to our attention. What I believe James means when he says that is that demons possess a common belief that results in a useless faith. The demons believe in Jesus and they shudder. They're terrified in his presence, but look where that got them. Eternal punishment. You see, anyone can believe in Jesus. Anyone can claim faith in Jesus. They can say, yes, I believe Jesus was a real person who lived a couple thousand years ago. 
But that doesn't mean that they're Christian. And it doesn't mean that they've been regenerated. One of the saddest realities about what James is trying to teach us here in chapter two and teach the early Christians is that apart from a genuine saving faith in Christ, there is no hope for the person who just has faith. Amen? It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible or what you've done, because the reality is this. Hell will be filled with people who had a good theology. Hell will be filled with people who thought they did enough to earn God's favor, but they never possessed a true saving faith. This is why the author of Hebrews says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. This is also why Jesus taught John chapter 15, where he says that he is divine and we are the branches. Whoever abides in him, he abides in us. It is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do no good. In essence, what Jesus is telling us in the gospel of John is that a squandering faith is a faith that does not hold Jesus as its true object. Christians are tethered to the vine by the grace of God. Amen? Let's pick up in verse 20. We're going to read through verse 25. We're moving through this kind of quickly. Third point, if you're following along with me, is I want to show you two pictures of saving faith. As we work through this, I'm I'm just trying to show you guys what I saw as I read through and studied this. Let's look at and uh, think about two pictures of saving faith. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? One of the most fascinating observations to me in this passage is how James uses two of the most opposite illustrations from Old Testament history. First, he uses Abraham. Abraham, and he tells us that Abraham's faith was active along with works. And at the other end of the spectrum, he gives us and he tells us about a woman named Rahab, who was a prostitute, who James says she was justified by works. Now, those are two different phrases, but dear friends, I don't want you to lose sight. They are indeed one and the same. James uses Abraham to illustrate the link between faith and works. And James references Genesis 22, where we see this man, Abraham, he takes his son as the Lord had directed him up this mountain. He wasn't asking his son, Isaac, to help him with the sacrifice. What I think uh, ultimately Abraham knew, but I think what Isaac figured out on the way up was that he was going to be the sacrifice. You can probably imagine the feelings, like just put yourself in that moment. You're with your parent and you're walking up as Old Testament laws are custom to provide a sacrifice, but you're looking around and you don't see a lamb. There must have been feelings of anguish or confusion or fear or sadness 
as both of them journeyed up to the top of the mountain together. Can you imagine as a father what he must have felt, knowing he was being obedient to what God had called him to do, but what was possibly going to be the result? But don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of the bigger picture in in the midst of how crazy that story sounds because the beautiful picture here is that all along, Abraham's faith in the Lord was active. All the way back to Genesis 15, where God promised Abraham to bless him and to bless his offspring. Abraham's faith led him up that mountain that day as the Lord had asked. And the entire time, God was testing Abraham's faith. And then... James tells us about a woman named Rahab, who was a prostitute. Now, again, the contrast between these two people in history could not be any higher. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. We have a patriarch, and we have a prostitute. We have someone who was moral, and then the other person is immoral. One of them is an upright Jew, and the other is a Gentile. But the similarity between Rahab and Abraham is that they both possessed a faith that led to action. And both on a ridiculous amount. If you consider what Abraham was going to do when he was ready to sacrifice his son, and then how Rahab risked her her life and her safety as she took in those spies and sent them on their way. Dear friends, this is a call for us today. This radical faith This faith that we possess has been given to us that calls us and leads us to action. This is the faith that God desires for us to have day in and day out. I think the reason we lose sight of that and we often forget what that looks like is because we often forget the worth of God's son and what all God did and what he put Jesus through. We must remember it was always a part of the plan. God sacrificed his son so that he could bring many people unto himself. It was always a part of the plan for us to be saved from our sin and be brought into right standing by what Jesus did. Although sometimes I think the opposite is true, as we see it as this was always a part of God's plan for salvation, that Jesus would come and live a perfect life and he would die on the cross in our place. And he would do all that so that you and I could live comfortably in one of the biggest anomalies of a country that this human history has ever seen. The freedoms and the luxuries that we have in the United States of America are amazing. Amen? Like to get to do this and to think about other people on the other side of the world who are risking their lives and their families' namesake because of Jesus. So the Bible is abundantly clear on what saving faith actually looks like. Two things I think it teaches us. First is this, salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone, meaning this. All we have when we come to Christ is our sin, which necessitates or gives us a need for salvation. And then all we do when we come to him is we say, I've got faith. I'm putting my faith and trust in you. And I'm trusting in what you did on the cross. And that's enough for me. That's all we do. So salvation is by faith alone. Second, the Bible teaches us that salvation is by a faith that is not alone. 
I hope I don't confuse you there. Secondly, salvation is by a faith that is not alone. That's been the entire argument of James here in chapter 2. When we trust in Christ, we trust in Christ alone. And we do it by faith alone. Not faith plus works, and certainly not faith plus our own value or worth. But this faith, biblical faith, true saving faith, is the only way a person can be saved and justified before God. But this faith that the Bible teaches us, that we possess, is not a faith that is alone. This faith comes as a packaged deal. It comes with the natural desire to be fruitful and to work. Martin Luther once said, the German monk, um, started the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. Interestingly enough, Martin Luther was not a fan of the book of James. He could not reconcile this idea of justification and faith and what James is saying here. But he said this, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor certainly does. We trust in Christ alone. And then the natural result is works. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. That the faith that you and I have right now, that we is hopefully living and active in us, It's not even a work. You're not working to do that faith. That faith is a gift. And in God's infinite wisdom, he ordained it to be this way. Why? Because if the opposite were true, then I could stand before you this morning and say, I'm better than you. Y'all follow me? Why is Tony better? Well, certainly this is perception of pastors. Like they're good people. They preach sermons and They evangelize. And think of how many people have heard the gospel and come to faith in Jesus because of what a pastor does. Y'all following me? If it were the opposite and it was based upon your works and mine, then I could say, well, yeah, I'm better than you. But that's not the way it is. Thankfully, by God's provision and grace, it cannot depend on human efforts. Therefore, it does not depend on human effort. It depends on Jesus's effort. Amen? Now, speaking of Paul, Begin to kind of bring this to a close here. As we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about this being saved through faith. And it's not our own doing. It's a result of work so that no one would boast. I wanted to take a moment before we wrap up to address a problem. Now, this problem has been around and people have been aware of it for centuries. And it's a question of this. How is a person justified before God? How is a person made righteous before God? Is it by faith or is it by works? Is it one and? Is it both? Well, I want to answer that question by asking a question. Here's the fourth point in your notes. Does James contradict the Apostle Paul? Does James contradict the Apostle Paul? Look at verse 26. James wraps up this entire argument before he moves on to a new thought. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, in thinking about this contradiction, turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. 
For many years, many have questioned what Paul says in Romans 3 about faith and works against what James says about faith and works in James chapter 2. It's almost as if they've struggled with this, and, and rightly so. They should question this for the sake of understanding and trying to figure out the heart of God and how this works. But it's almost as if they were saying they're trying to refute each other or start a war, and that's not true. These guys are dear brothers in the faith, and they did a lot for the early Christians. And I can confidently tell you this morning, does James contradict Paul? Absolutely, emphatically not. Does the Bible contradict itself? Absolutely, emphatically not. Does Paul and James contradict each other? No. Rather, what I hope you'll see is that they're complementing each other. Look at verse 21. The, point, the verse I want to bring to your attention before we close is 28, but let's just kind of back up here. Romans chapter 3. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and also the justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now here it is, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, as you see that, go right back to James chapter 2, verse 26. Keep in mind with what Paul just said. James says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, on paper, it pretty much appears that we finally found it. Like, Christianity is now worthless. There's a big contradiction in the Bible. Years of history goes down the drain. We can just close up shop and go home. We don't even need to do a response song. Let's just go. Except that both you and I know that this is not true. But how, this is the question asked, how do we reconcile these two statements? How do we justify Paul's teaching about faith and works with what James says and teaches about faith and works? Now, in an effort to be as clear and as concise as I can, because truth be told, dear friends, I wanted to bring this to our attention. I wanted to address this, but this deserves a whole sermon by itself. This is 30 to 40 minutes of walking through it and trying to understand it as best as we can. And I feel as if maybe I'm opening a can of worms that we don't have a lot of time to look at, but I wanted to do this to be faithful to the text and be helpful to you. I would also encourage you to go and dig in this yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Go and read more of Romans and more of James and look at commentaries and look at books and do research and try to reconcile this yourself. I would encourage you to do that. But here's what I would submit to you this morning. One of the easiest ways to understand that these two verses complement each other and they don't contradict each other and that they are in essence arguing for the same thing is to see it this way. They're doing it from two different perspectives. They're both looking at the same side of one coin. 
but they're approaching it from two different angles. Keep in mind, we have two different authors who are writing to two different audiences at two different times in history. But the best way to understand this potential problem is that Paul is arguing for faith and works from a pre-conversion perspective. Y'all follow me when I say that? Paul is talking about faith and works to people who have not already been converted, who have not believed in Jesus. James, on the other hand, is arguing for faith and works from a post-conversion perspective, which means this. Given the context of Paul's letter to the Roman citizens, of whom we know most of them were not believers, he says this to them. For we hold that a person is saved by faith alone and not by works. This is crucial for them to know because we're thinking about people, again, who have a works-based mindset. They think, yeah, I can be good. I got to do more. God will accept me that way. And Paul's saying, no, it's by faith alone. Now, keep in mind, Paul is talking about the same faith that we have just walked through and looked at in James chapter 2. It's a package deal. Paul fully understands that once they came to faith in Christ, the natural result would be works for Christ. Amen? Does that make sense? Now, James argues from, for faith and works from a post-conversion perspective. He, when you look at the context of James, is writing to Christians. He is reminding his Christian readers that true genuine faith that they claim to have, which they may have or they may not have, true genuine faith in Christ results for in working for Christ. Therefore, no one can say that you have your faith and I have my works. That's hogwash. It doesn't matter how much you do and uh, uh, how many service projects or how good you are to people. If you're not a believer of Christ and a part of a church, I'm sorry. These two things go together, faith and works. And it's a beautiful thing. I hope that's been helpful. To close, I want to bring us back to our title. I tried to think through what a title would look like this morning. And then I thought about some of the great music that was around when I was just a little kid. And I thought about Wanted, Dead or Alive. One of the things that I hope you'll take away this morning is this. True faith, true biblical faith requires risk, compassion, and action. Risk, compassion, and action. And the truth is this. Every one of us in this room has faith. We all have faith to give. We exercise faith every day. We place our faith in literally hundreds of different things every day. You're exercising faith right now in the chair that you're sitting in. We all have faith. But I know this. There are two spiritual beings vying for your attention and for your faith. And in our fallen state, we no longer have allegiance to the creator of the universe, and therefore, in our sinfulness, we have been enabled to not have true faith in him. And so on one hand, we have this spiritual being, which we know as Satan. He wants your faith, and he wants it bad. And he'll do anything to pull you away from a true, genuine faith. And now, I'm, I, I want you to see this too. This, this faith that Satan has been creating and trying to pull us towards, it manifests itself in many different ways, in many different belief systems and religions. If it's not about Jesus and Jesus alone, it doesn't 
get you to heaven. So Satan's working and vying for your faith. And the problem with that faith is it leads to death here on earth and eternally. And then on the other hand, we have this beautiful, loving, creating spiritual being who we know is God. He's given you the ability to choose to put your faith in him or in something else. And he's even gone further to write an entire book to point you to himself. And he tells you about this faith and he tells you what is the result of this faith. And he tells you that this faith brings life and it is good for you here on earth and it will be good for you for all of eternity. In fact, when you place your faith in him, it makes you alive. So my hope uh, as I close is to just get you to examine yourself and then to ask, where does my faith really lie? Is the object of my faith in my own works? Am I trusting in my next paycheck and what I can do? I'm going to put a meal on a table, or do I know that all of that is just the grace and provision of God? Wherever you may be, I invite you to respond. As the band comes up here in just a second, we're going to sing together, and we'll have people in the back if you want to talk with someone or to pray with someone. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and something that was said or something we looked at challenged you, and you're saying, maybe I need to go deeper in my faith because I'm falling into this hogwash if that's you, we'd love to talk with you. So as God leads you, you respond. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the day and this text. Thank you for the difficulty uh, and the questions and the debate that it has uh, generated throughout lo- the last several hundred years of history. God, I pray that this time was helpful and encouraging, but also, Lord, challenging and convicting. Lord, help us not to walk away from this moment and just go back to whatever we were doing before we came. Help us to see that the faith that you provide in Christ and through Christ is something that gives us life, not only eternally, but here on earth. So Father, I pray that for every person in this room, that they would experience true life-giving faith in you day in and day out as they work, as they uh, seek to have friendships as husbands and wives love each other and as they lead their children, whatever it may look like, Lord, will we put our faith and trust in you. Pray that you would do all these things according to your will upon your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 